You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first commandment that was given to the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness and as God was preparing them to go into the promised land. That's the first commandment. And they struggled the hardest with the first commandment. They never got over that struggle. And neither do we. At this stage in our, our, the story of us from Genesis to Jesus, we come to a time where last week we moved from throne, who is on the throne of your life, to what happens when you are dethroned. And that's exactly what happened to Israel and Judah, is they were dethroned. And I want to kind of share this story with you because it's a repeating pattern throughout human history that God has presented himself to us and that we'd rather have other things. We'd rather have other really small gods, small idols, rather than worshiping him alone. We struggle with that same commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the land in which this story from Genesis to, G- to Jesus occurred. And we're coming right now to this place called Israel. And when Joshua, 400 years to the time that we're going to be talking about, 400 years previous to this, Joshua divided up the inheritance of the land between 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one of these tribes were relations uh, with Jacob's family and then Joseph's family from Egypt as God was preparing them for the promised land. And what happened is after we talked about three kings last week, Saul and David and Solomon, is the king right after Solomon, Rehoboam, split the kingdom in two. And the northern tribes went with, with Jeroboam and the southern tribes went with Rehoboam. The northern tribes were 10, 10 tribes of the 12 went with Jeroboam. Just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stuck with Rehoboam. And this was the divided kingdom. When you take a look at the kings of the northern kingdom, there were 19 of them. And all of them, the scripture says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, instead of worshiping him alone, they set up other gods and they worshiped other gods that were linked with the people around them. They, They saw the other nations with their gods and their idols. And instead of the one true God, they worshiped all those other little idols and little gods. And in 722, something happened. In 722, the Assyrian Empire, if you look over there on the right, the Assyrian Empire, with its capital in Nineveh, came down with the leader Sennacherib and basically defeated all those 10 northern tribes, ransacked the city of Samaria, which was their capital, and carted them off never to return. When they settled them, they settled them with other people from other countries and cultures. And so they had their Jewish heritage, but they had all the other religions of the people around them. And that's why when Jesus was walking this earth and he came across a Samaritan woman, they, they were half Jewish and they were half resettled with all the other people and all the different nations. And they didn't worship God alone. They worshiped God and other gods. And that's why Jews despised Samaritans. But Jesus reached out to a Samaritan and presented himself to her. 
And then what we have is, is in the south, we just had two, two tribes. And, and in Judah, in 586, we had the kingdom of Babylon with, with, from Babylonia there. And they came up and they laid siege on Jerusalem. And in 586 BC, they defeated Jerusalem and took some exiles and captives and brought them back to Babylon. This is the PG-14 section of scripture because the last king, ironically, was named with a Z, Zedekiah. His sons were brought out in front of him after they were defeated. Their heads were cut off and his eyes were gouged out. Now think about that. Yeah, because the last thing, think about this, the last thing you remember seeing was the death of your sons. The Babylonians were evil, wicked people. And they took, the, they took a whole group of Jewish refugees back with them. But unlike the Assyrians, they kept them together. So that 70 years after Jerusalem was defeated, a remnant would come back and resettle the land. God was really teaching a lesson to Israel He was teaching a lesson to Judah that you should have no other gods before me because instead of it, instead of them being a light to the nations, they actually became a laughingstock of the nations. And we get a picture of this in uh, the book of Psalms, in Psalm 137. If you have your Bibles, open up there with me and we'll follow along. This is kind of like a mourning for a lost Israel because they chased after other gods. And it kind of shows us where other gods lead us when we choose to walk away from God. In this passage, in Psalm 137, beginning with verse 1, let's read it. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres or our harps. For there are captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, which is really, they, they kind of just laughed at them and mocked them. That's what that word mirth means, saying, hey, sing us one of those songs of Zion. In other words, hey, remember your national anthem, sing it, because we're going to laugh at you. I mean, look at where you're at right now. And then it goes personal. The writer of this psalm says this, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Let's talk about this, because I think it gives us four, four destinations of where other gods lead us. And number one, other gods hold us captive. They hold us captive. We may not think this, we may search and pursue something else than God and think it gives us a great amount of freedom, but other gods rule, right? They lead us, they direct us, they have a far greater influence than we ever expected them to give us. And here, what did they do with Israel and Judah? What did they do? Number one, they, they held them captive to a misplaced identity. That's one of the questions they ask. How can we sing to God in a foreign land? We are displaced. And everything that was their, their identity of being a light to the nations now was just people were laughing at them. Their identity was misplaced. Second of all, they had a neglected purpose. 
It says, if I forget you, let my right hand forget its skill. So a gift that was given to them, the capacity to lead worship. Maybe these were worship band leaders here who lost the capacity because they hung their harps on the willows in mourning of loss of what they walked away from. And I find this happening to us too. We lose our purpose in life when we walk and pursue and follow other gods. It's also silence is a message. It says, if I forget you, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. It's silence. Other gods silence a message of who our God is. Instead of making him greater, it kind of silences him, and you kind of are embarrassed to speak for God when you're serving another God. And finally, a forgotten kingdom. If I don't set you above my highest joy, Jerusalem, I mean, that's that whole picture. Their highest joy used to be a place where God was lifted up, and now a forgotten kingdom is a reality. What's your God What idol are you bowing to? I don't know about you, but I remember when I was in college, my God was a 1987 Ford Mustang GT convertible. (laughs) And I wanted that car. I lusted after that car. And I saved all my pennies. I saved and I worked really hard. And then I remember the day I took up all my savings and I went to the Ford dealership and I bowed down and I lifted up my down payment. (laughs) And I said, take it, take it. And they said, we would gladly take it. What will it take to get you into this car today? What does your monthly payment need to be? And I put out a number there and they put the shackles on me called debt. And in comparison to my income, I had this huge amount of debt, but I had the Mustang GT convertible with a white leather interior and a black paint. I mean, it just sparkled. And I got into this car and I drove away. Actually, I lurched away because I didn't know how to drive a stick shift. So I'm... People are going, nice car, but then I went, you know, and I'm launching... Into the, into the intersection. <laughs> Finally learned how to drive the car. And then I was in business school at the University of Wisconsin, and it was an early morning class, and it was a beautiful spring day in Wisconsin. And after that class, I lowered, you know, took the, made it into the convertible. It, you know, just sunk back into that back seat, and I put that covering on. And after there, I mean, all the cars were driving by, and I'm sporting out, you know, like this. You know, don't look at anyone, just look straight ahead. And there was about a 30-foot space of which I could go, and I said, I'm going to take it. And so I engaged, and I let off the clutch, and I just lit up the back tires. They started smoking, and I just rocketed out there, and I turned, and I continued to go, and then immediately I had to slam on my brakes to not hit the car in front of me. And I looked in the back mirror, and I forgot something. I had my weekend laundry in the back seat. (laughs) And as I rocketed out, the whole front top layer of my laundry and underwear went right off the back of my car and onto the road. What do you do when this happens? You keep going. No way was I going to stop. And so my weekend continued, and then I came back to class on Monday, and as I walked in, everyone stood and went. (laughs) And my whole identity in that class was Mustang Man. 
hey, what does Mustang Man think about this? And with each time, I was just embarrassed. I had to put my head down. I remember the other thing I didn't remember about this that I just remembered recently is Milwaukee has like nine months of winter. And you can't drive a Mustang. The back end of it just would, you would fishtail like crazy in the winter. So I had to drive like a 78 Le Mans, folks. You know, two-door with doors, each one of them weighing seven to 800 pounds. And, and no one looked at the Le Mans, okay? I did that for four months during the winter and so I could drive the Mustang. So I gave up everything. And I remember parking it far from civilization so I wouldn't get a door ding in it from anyone else. I was always worried about what, you know, what it looks like and how I look in it. And it totally took what God was doing in my life and just put it in the background of it. And I found that, that I was becoming more and more like Mustang Man than I was the guy, the guy God created me to be. Gods do that. We can kind of become like them, can't we? How does this happen? How does this happen? Well, Psalm 115 kind of gives a picture of it. When Israel looks and and makes some statements about other gods, it says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Look what it says about them. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Let me just pause here. This is describing everything we have the capacity to do as humans. Because we had a God who created us in his image to reflect him and make him greater. And here what they're saying is, we can do this. Most of us have eyes that we can see out of. Most of us have ears that we can hear out of. Most of us have feet and we're walking and hands that we can feel and noses that we can smell from. But gods, they're just little idols. They're, they can't do anything. This was uncovered at an archaeological dig in Canaan, which is present-day Israel. And that is the god Baal, which you see a lot of in the scriptures. And Israel bowed down to Baal multiple times. And look at it. It's almost as if they take it, they put it on a table and go, look at that. That's got eyes, but it can't see. Ears, it can't hear. It's got mouths, it can't speak. Our God speaks to us. Our God hears us. Our God sees us. The, God, the eyes of God look, look all around, keeping watch on the good and the evil. I mean, there's no place hidden from the sight of God. Why would we take a massive downgrade? Why would we go back to the flip phone when... When we have the iPhone X, basically God is saying that. Why would you go to something that's even below you and worship that? Then worship the God who created you in his image. But I want to point out a picture here. And I put it in bold. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then it makes the statement, oh, Israel... Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And it says that three times over because it wants just to remind them, Israel, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in those inferior gods. Don't downgrade your worship to something that doesn't do anything for you. And what I found, found this simple truth as I looked in my own life is that we become what we love. Gods have an incredible influence on us, far greater than we think. 
And no, I didn't become a Mustang GT convertible, but it, it just filled my thoughts. I was obsessed with that car. If something happened, I was more worried about that than I was the gospel being reflected through my life. Things do that. Image will do that. What's your God? You can kind of look at what gets the, what gets the object of my love and my tension And you can trace right back to, this is what I'm worshiping in life. We don't wake up going, I will bow to this God. That's too ancient for us to do. But we certainly live like it when we direct all our time and energy and finances and attention to things other than God. Folks, we become what we love. And so as we look at this, I want to kind of give you a picture of what must happen in our lives is we must tear down and turn back to the king on his throne. Last week, we talked about what is it like to have God on the throne of your life. And to keep God on the throne of your life, I said two things. You've got to love him. You've got to love the king and you've got to live for his kingdom. Those are the two things that keep our hearts loyal to God, that, that move our hearts to follow him and to serve him with our first and our best, not our last and our leftovers. And that requires that anything's in the way, anything that's a close second needs to be a distant past for us. And Israel was called throughout their history then, tear down the gods you have built up in your life. And the kings who were good tore them down and turned his people back to God. It requires this for us. When I was traveling in Israel, I came to this ancient city called Dan, and it's in the northern part of Israel. And it was the place where Jeroboam set up a competing temple, and he built an altar with four horns on it, which meant he wasn't worshiping to God. He wasn't worshiping God and, and offering sacrifices to God. He was building his own counter kingdom. And in front of this ancient city of Dan is this. It's a platform that they build with rocks and stones, and they would put their gods on this podium, and they would put it out in front for all to see, anyone traveling through there, these are our gods, this is what is the power, and this is, these are the values of our city. And so if you were to defeat a city, you would usually go to this place first, and before you'd breach the wall, you would smash the gods. And so sure enough, when they were digging and found this, they found cracked idols that people had smashed as this town was conquered. And this is that platform there. And it requires, this is a picture of our lives. In order for God to reign, we've got we to gotta tear down the idols we built. We have to have a defining moment where we go, that Mustang GT convertible is an awesome car, but it will not drive my life. I'm not asking you to give up a Porsche if you have one. I'm just asking you to make Jesus the number one is the issue and person in your life that you're living for and driving for, by the way. And so we've got to tear down these gods. And so what I want to do for you in the moments that I have left is show you God on his throne, what it looks like to have God on his throne. And we're going to actually take you to a prophet who lived at this time of dethroning in Judah and saw God on his throne, and it changed everything about his life. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Open up your Bibles if you haven't turned there yet, and, or flip over to Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll start reading. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Let me just pause there. 
So there's two events that are happening here. One, his good friend. You don't know about it before, but if you follow the history, the, a good, one of his best friends was King Uzziah. And King Uzziah had a defining moment in his life where he turned away from himself. He put himself on the throne. And, and he put God back on the throne. And he tore down all the high places that Judah had built up to worship other gods so that he could put God in the highest place in that land. And as he did that, Israel, and I mean Judah, uh, was, was restored back to God and they enjoyed a time of peace. But here is a time when he dies. So all the national security is at risk. There's a politically uncertain time. And what God is saying is, look, I'm still on the throne. Isaiah, when your best friend died, some of you have lost best friends or spouses or children this year, and you know the loss of that. And you wonder, where is God when this is happening? And God is saying, I'm on the throne. I'm on the throne. I haven't left. It doesn't explain why, okay? But it does explain something that we need to realize. God's still in control. We may not understand it, and it may not make sense to us, but we at least see this reality. God is on his throne. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. It's kind of an interesting creature that's there. But there are different creatures in heaven than here on earth. We've got to give God the creativity to do that. And there are, and this is what they're doing. Look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Some scholars think that they were looking at the Trinity and they said, Holy to the Father, holy to the Son, holy to the Holy Spirit. But I don't think it's that. I think it's the number three and how that's a complete number. We still use that in our culture today. Man, three strikes, you're out. Right, because if you mess up three times, it kind of gives a picture of character. I mean, even Lionel Richie says once, twice, three times a lady, right? That's a complete woman, right? I'm sorry, work with me, people. But here, these seraphim are saying, holy, 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 perfect, 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 complete, full of glory, Yeah, let's keep reading. It says, And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So all of heaven is trembling. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake, but I got a call last year because my parents live out in California. And my dad goes, yeah, there's an earthquake. I said, Dad, what was it like? He says, the floor, Joe, was like liquid. We were kind of doing this kind of thing, you know. I've never been drunk, but that's what it must feel like when the earth, and, and in, when that's happening and things are rumbling, there's this feeling of something greater is happening here than I can see or control, and that leads us to have an awe when, when that happens. You see that. It, it kind of garnishes respect. And then look what happens. He goes internal here in verse 5. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. And I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's his response. He goes and he sees the holiness of God, and he can't not look at his own sin. He just goes, woe, woe is me. Not, woe, this is a fantastic experience. This is like, woe, I am done. I'm lost. 
I don't belong up here. I don't belong close. Why? Because I'm an unclean person and I come from a people of unclean people. And that's how we need to look at our sin too. Most times the church goes, look at all those people out there and how unclean they are. We are looking pretty good. And God wants us to look internal first. And when you look internal, you realize you're really not that good after all. You're far worse than you think you are. And when you realize that, then you're ready for God's love. Because even though you're far worse off than you imagine, you are far loved than you ever dreamed. And our God sees us that way. And he includes us in and be around him because he chooses us not just to know the worst about us, but to give his best to us. And that's exactly what happens. Look at this in verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Wow, this is something that happens to each of us when we come to God, is that we realize we can't do it. We can't do it. There's got to be that moment where we look at ourselves and goes, woe is me. I am at a loss here. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Most religions are built around, okay, you're not like God. You're not the person you should be, but just try harder. Be a better person and gonna make it, gonna make it. Someday your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and you'll get in. Now you won't necessarily know when that happens. So just keep trying. There's no confidence in faith. There's no confidence in a walk with God. There's no comfort, there's no rest, because it all depends on you. You know what that's like. Many of us came from backgrounds where we went to church to keep God on our side, where we did things so that he wouldn't get us. We confessed our sin because God is keeping a list of who's been naughty or nice, and he is going to mess with you. And so there's always fear in that. Not the good fear of respect, but the fear of, oh, no, he's going to get me. That's why we have to come to the point in our faith where we realize it's not up to us. If anything's going to happen, it has to come from God. Just as this seraphim uh, touched the coal to Isaiah's lips and said, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, we must have that moment in our lives where we realize when God saw us as we were sinners without a hope in this world, Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life for us, a life we couldn't do as much as we try. I mean, I can be better than you, but I can't be perfect. And by the way, I'll determine what I'm better at you, and you'll determine how you're better than me. But that's a fixed horse race. That's not truth. And the reality of it is we all have to come to the point where we realize Jesus can only do this for me. And faith is trusting in Jesus to do for us what we can't for ourselves. He lived for us, he died for us, and he rose again for us. And then something else happened here. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now think about this. This is kind of like Isaiah going, Whoa, whoa, it's me. And God saying, Go for me. And it's that moment God uses humble people to do that. 
He doesn't use people who, at least for his glory, that go, hey, look at how awesome I am. God deserves me. I'm a gift to the church. Welcome. It's good to have you here. That's not what God is honored by. He's honored by someone who goes, woe is me. And that's where God says, who will go for us? Who will go for us? Don't build your image on social media and think that God is honored by that. Don't build your image by being a me monster in a conversation and think that God will use that for anything more than humbling you. We've got to be people who are humble, and that's exactly the voice of the Lord said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's where the Trinity is mentioned in this passage, by the way. God speaks of himself in the plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then I said, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. See, this is going to help us tear down the gods in our lives and turn back to the God who's on the throne. And there's four things that I see in here I want you to remember. The first one is this. We've got to tear down anything that's competing with the holiness of Jesus in our lives. Whether it's self-righteousness, I'm not that bad, I'm pretty good. Or whether it's denial. We need to be people who understand the holiness of God in our lives, and that it's a major downgrade to put anything up against the perfectness and the completeness of who God is. Another word for idolatry was emptiness because those gods couldn't do anything. We need to see the holiness of God, how he's on a much greater plane. He's much greater. He's more complete. He's more perfect than anything. Don't downgrade. Upgrade him and put him on his throne of your life. Secondly, we need to understand and turn from our sin. As I said, Isaiah saw it clearly. He goes, woe is me. I am messed up, and I come from a messed up family. How many of that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us come are like that? We are messed up, and I have a lineage of messed up people. And you know what? God goes, thanks for being honest. I saw it. I see that. Begin with me. And that's what he does. Isaiah sees, he understands, and he turns from his sin. He calls it what it was, and he turned from it, and he turned to God. In other words, woe is me is a picture of if you don't do something, I'm out. I'm out because I'm lost up here. I'm lost for options. I'm lost. And that's why we call those who are lost, and we all are apart from Christ, to trust and receive his forgiveness. We've got to be people who are okay with God providing for us what we can't provide for ourselves. When Jesus is on the throne, he's doing what only he can do in your life. And as just as the same power that you had no idea of when you worship another God is influencing your life, when Jesus is on your throne, you will do things you had never imagined doing when he's leading and directing your life. And that requires that you trust in him to do. So let me just ask you before we move on, have you by faith put your trust in Jesus? Because a lot of us come from backgrounds where it's up to me if it's going to be in a relationship with God. We all have to come to that point where we stop trying and start trusting. And it can be something as simple as, God, I am messed up, and I just hear that you love me, and I heard that you lived for me in Christ, you died for me, and you rose again. I get it now. I didn't get it before, but I get it now. And I trust that. 
And I turn from my sin to trust and follow you. However that's going to look for, I'm just going to tear down that God and I'm going to make you the God of my life. Thank you, Jesus, for living, dying, and rising from the dead for me. And I believe that. And if that's you, and today was the first day you believe, welcome to the family. We are a family of messed up people. None of us is perfect, but we're all following someone who is. His name is Jesus, and we aim to keep him on the throne of our lives. Trust and receive the forgiveness of God. And then the final thing is this, to listen and respond to his voice. That's pretty much a a description of a following life, a life that's a follower of Jesus, who listens to what God is saying to you and follows and responds. Isaiah heard the voice of God, who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. I was talking to a guy this week named Eddie, and we were here last night, and we were praying, uh, put him any request before the weekend began, and Eddie is our sound guy right now. Eddie, raise your hand there. There he is. Okay, he's in the back. He hates being in the front. Um, but he raised his hand and said, hey, pray for me. This is kind of a bittersweet weekend. Uh, it's my last weekend here at Fellowship. And immediately I went ins- insecure, like he's moving away, and he doesn't like us anymore. But then he said, I'm going to be... I'm going to be the tech arts director at the new church plant at Highcrest. Yeah. And and my mind went to Isaiah 6. Who will go for us, right? Which 70 of you said, here am I, send me. Because we needed someone who left the comfort of this place to go to a new place and an unknown place to start a new church. 70 of you said, here am I, because you go for us. And you advance the kingdom of God in your generation through perhaps a scary move, but you said yes. So Eddie, we thank the Lord for you, your blessing to us, and many blessings to you as you go and lead in that area. I want you to hear another story, a story from a guy named Mike Steinhoff. And we may have heard several years ago, Mike almost died. He had a major medical issue, and he shared that with us on his testimony in the past. But this testimony is really how he came to Christ and how Christ is on the throne of his life. And I hope you'll see this. It might motivate, encourage us to put Christ on the throne of our lives. Take a look at this. Hi, my name is Mike Steinhoff. I... Never really went to church full-time, just went every once in a while. And then when I was 26 years old, I realized that my life was empty and that I needed Christ. I pretty much grew up, I was always a wild kid. I was always doing a lot of crazy things. But when I turned 17, a lot of changes happened in my life and did a lot of wrong things and went about just being kind of a horrible person. I pretty much made a living breaking laws and taking and whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it, and lived that way for the next 10 or so years of my life. And then uh, no matter how much I had spent or people I knew or companionship, whatever, none of that, I always, when I was alone, I was always empty and I never knew why. I had everything, but I could never figure out why I was always needing something. Christmas time, I was really had nothing. I lived in a big house, had all everything I ever needed, but I, I was alone. I had nothing. No friends, no family, no nothing. My throne was popularity, money, 
things. And I thought I had it all, but I just always felt empty. Three or four months later, I was invited to church to witness um, a baby dedication. And then they started talking about the prodigal son. And I felt like he was speaking right to me. And I remember like it was yesterday, I started crying. I started crying because it was like he was talking to me and he's like I could come back and somebody cared. Then the next week I decided to go back just to see if what I was feeling was real. And then he talked about how, you know, possessions and and how none of that takes the place of Christ. And when he said that, it all kind of clicked. It just came down like a ton of bricks. That's what I've been searching for. I just went so long without it. So now, you know, I just, now I, I replaced everything that I had with, with Christ and put him on the throne. It was like a big weight was removed, but then another big weight was sitting on top of me saying, you have all this. It was all, it was all gotten in all the wrong ways. So I guess that was Jesus kicking me straight off of my own personal throne. And then I built a relationship with him. And now I, I think that uh, Christ is my throne. The following Christmas, it's funny because I, I had nothing more in my life. I gave up everything, gave away everything. I was renting a room in a house and driving an old beat up truck and was just content and as happy as can be. And I thought to myself, what a year had changed and how many different ways it changed in my life and just the happiness that I felt. And it was just like, wow, you know, Christ forgives me for all this. And it hit me like just one day, like, this is it. This is the end of it. I'm forgiven. We talked last week of when you put Christ on the throne of your life and love him and live for his kingdom. It's not a one and done decision. It's a daily decision. And that's why we always have to remember, we always have to be people who are vigilant that whatever we set up instead of God, we got to tear down to turn back and come back to God. What's your idol? What's your close second to God or even what God is second to in your life. Take this time as we pass out communion and we celebrate the work of God for us in Christ to confess that to the Lord and to find forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God loves people who humble themselves in front of him and he will lift you up. Make him greater in your life. And I just want to put this out that if you, if today was the first day you put your faith and trust in Christ, take this. Because by taking this, you are declaring Jesus is the Son of God. He came to this world and he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for me and he rose from the dead. I believe this. And if you've not yet believed this, I'm so glad you're here. It's an honor to have you. But I would just let this pass by. Don't take this because this, that wouldn't be authentic. And we want to be about an authentic relationship with Christ. So I'd ask that you'd hang on to these two elements so that we can take them together as a family.